0: I often think that things that have absolutely nothing to do with me are my fault. For instance, I'm driving in Manhattan and I hear a honk about three blocks away. (laughs) I say to my husband, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? He's like, nothing, nothing. Um, Here's another example. She was about a year old and fairly feral. She came from Texas and had probably been a farm dog and had never lived indoors. Suddenly, she was living in a Manhattan apartment. Lo and behold, she wasn't toilet trained. She chewed up her couch. Of course, we fell head over heels in love with her. When I took her to the dog run, she played very happily with all the other dogs, until about six months ago. I took her to the dog run, and I noticed she wasn't playing with the other dogs. She was just sitting by my side and not doing anything. I kept saying, go, go play with the other dogs. But she didn't do anything. She just sat there and didn't do anything. So at some point, I asked our trainer, who we see occasionally because of Nancy's ongoing issues, (laughs) (laughs) why isn't the dog playing with the other dogs? And she said, well, when dogs grow up, when they get older, they become more task-focused and less play-focused. I'm like, oh. She said, there's nothing wrong with her. I said, we didn't screw her up? She said, no. (laughs) I was very relieved. Don't we all, at times, see the world through the prisms, through the prism of ourselves? as if it's all about us, for better or for worse, is because what I did right or what I did wrong. Either way, we put ourselves at the center of the story, when the reality is that each of us is so very small against the expanse of the cosmos, a cosmos we can barely understand, not only because we are so small, but because we pretend to be so very large. Now, obviously, human beings have an impact on one another and on the environment, for better and really for worse. Um, But today I'm talking about a different realm, the realm in which we have little to no control. How can we see that for what it is and who we are in relationship to that? for who we are it reminds me of the serenity prayer god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things that i can and the wisdom to know the difference you know most of the time i'm wondering and wondering and i really don't know the difference it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time When we know the difference, when we really know the difference, when we understand what is not in our control, I believe it is not only humbling, but it can be liberating. It's the process of understanding our real dimensions as human beings, knowing where we can and cannot make a difference. I call this process right-sizing ourselves. There's a story in the Talmud, as it happens to be, exactly about this theme, and it's also about Hanukkah. It's about Adam Harishon, the first person ever created, Adam, who suffered from the same consciousness that many of us do, the consciousness that says it's all because of you. Here's how the story goes. As Adam noticed how the days slowly became shorter, and shorter and darker. He said, woe is me, oily. It's because of my sin that the world is getting darker. And and we'll return to the original chaos, tohu bohu, And that must be my death sentence that I've been penalized with from the heavens. So he saw what was going on, and he he, he thought, it's all my fault. I ruined things ei leo ei li, li she ma bis viel scharlachtei ei lam kho schpe adi hier bis sagele to huva vo dai dai. rai rai ya rai <muching> oi oy li ai oy li she ba bispierschassa wachti oi laf hai isch achsha ho zeher um mag in de to huva vo jet ai li oi adam says in the darkness and the terror that the world was coming to an end but somehow even in this moment of desperation, Adam, the first Adam, was able to come to prayer. He prayed and fasted for eight days. And after eight days, Adam noticed that the days began to lengthen. I'm glad that's funny. I didn't realize that line would be funny. <laughs> and he said, he said something very interesting and surprising. He said, this must be the way of the world. Min Shell Olamhi. Ossie, do you have another song for that? No. No. Okay. And I'm not there. I'm not in the tree. I'm right here, in front of you. In front of you. <laughs> This is not scripted. <laughs> so, what did Adam Adam notice after eight days of prayer and fasting? Not only that the world was not coming to an end, but that the and not only that the light was growing, he understood something more revolutionary than that. He saw the world for what it was. He began to understand that there are rhythms and cycles in the world, that light and dark have a pattern, and that these patterns have nothing to do with him. There is a way of the world, a minhago shel olam. He didn't cause it, and he can't change it as much as he might want to. Mind you, he could have easily believed that that the light started to increase because of his Special prayer and God's special regard for him, and he could have gone on thinking that the world revolved around him and that even God revolved around him. But he came to a different kind of conclusion. What's really interesting here and kind of su- surprising is that the kind of prayer he engaged him, he ga- he engaged in got him out of the way of his own vision so that he could see things more clearly. Prayer gave him the gift of getting outside of himself, seeing beyond himself. And not only that, there's another surprise here. Once he understood that the world was beyond his control, you might have thought that he would become passive. It makes sense. There's nothing I can do about it. This is the way it's going on. This is the way it's going to continue. I think I'll just lay back. Instead, he became a person of agency. He celebrated for eight days as the light grew longer. And the next year, he celebrated the eight days before the solstice, as the days were getting darker and darker, and the next eight days after the solstice, as the days were getting brighter and brighter. Perhaps he was celebrating those first eight days in an effort to remind himself that during these very scary days of dwindling light, the light will return. The first Adam, Adam Harishon, is a human being who has matured. Now, here we stand in the coldest season, in the darkest season, and this holiday begins as the moon has almost disappeared in the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev. And what's really interesting about this festival is it's the only festival that has a Rosh Chodesh, a new month, um, in the middle of it. Right. So the moon, when the holiday starts, gets darker and darker and darker and then disappears entirely and then is born and begins to become light again. So we start lighting the candles as the darkness is growing, and then it's almost as if the heavens mimic us, and the moon starts to get lighter, right? So by the eighth day, we have a small sliver of a moon. And tonight, I think, would be the darkest night. We have six candles. So here on Earth, amongst human beings, um, it's a bright night, but in the heavens, it's a dark night. During these weeks of Hanukkah, or during this week of Hanukkah, we intersect in our sacred readings in the Torah with the Joseph story. And the Joseph story is another story of maturation. There's some incredible parallels with the legend we began with. Joseph, actually, Basia and I had a little argument about this. I think he's, like, one of the most self-centered characters in, in the Tara. Um, <laughs> She's more of a, a Joseph kind of person. No, not that, not that she's self-centered. <laughs> but, I mean, she supports trying, Joseph. She's a, she, she doesn't see him that way. You can't talk. <laughs> I do have the microphone. <laughs> I know. He's his father... Jacob's favorite son his father gives him this multicolored coat to show his favoritism which I know isn't his fault but he does go and tattles on his brothers and, and then he tells them these dreams that are all about him being the center of the universe I won't go into the details and about their sort of, you know, worshiping him so they hate him for a good reason and then the brothers take him down, way down. They strip him of his multicolored coat. They throw him into a pit, and they plan to kill him. But instead, he is sold into slavery, taken down into Egypt. So the Joseph story is a wonderful story. It starts in, page, in, in chapter 37 of Genesis and goes to 50, uh, uh, chapter 50. I definitely recommend you read it. It's a detailed, wonderful novella. But to make a long story short, after many ups and downs in Joseph's life, he becomes a viceroy and his brothers come to see him because there's famine in Canaan and they leave and they want food. And he kind of starts to play with them in, 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 you know, as a person who's taken revenge. And what they do differently this time than last time is they protect their younger brother, Benjamin, and they have have compassion for their father. They want to protect Benjamin and their father. But until the end of their lives, they hold this guilt. And they say to Joseph in the last chapter of Genesis forgive please the transgressions and sins of your brothers for they committed evil toward you this is the message they'd send to joseph through messengers and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the god of your father and joseph wept and he says back to them as for you you meant evil against me like he acknowledges it but God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save the lives of so many. So what Joseph does is recontextualizes the acts, the horrible acts of his brother, and in doing so is able to forgive them. and in doing so understands that this is a much bigger story than either their acts or his acts represent. Right? He came to Egypt to save life. So if we think back to the legend, Adam and Joseph and his brothers all emerge from the darkness of self-absorption and see that they are part of a larger picture, a larger story, a vast universe unfolding. They all, one can say, are shattered by the darkness, but emerge as one able to offer the the world their gifts rather than one who wants attention from the world for their gifts? How do we emerge from darkness to become full, giving, loving, celebrating people? By becoming right-sized, by knowing it's not ultimately about us, not ultimately about our faults and not about our gifts that we are not at the center of the universe by knowing that each of us because of the way of the world travel through light and darkness that we are made up of light and darkness of wholeness and brokenness that our love is born from that place not from a place upon which only the sun shines When we are right-sized, we understand that we are here on this earth not to promote ourselves, not to be at the center of things. We are here to give love, to play a role in a bigger script than we are aware of. When we are on the other side of the dark pit, we, with deep knowledge of the darkness, can say to those who are still in the pit, I understand what darkness is. It's all part of the cosmos. It may feel like utter abandonment, but even there, too, I am with you, and I'm waiting for you at the edge. When we are right-sized, we can say, along with the poet Leonard Cohen, Now I greet you from the other side of sorrow and despair, with a love so vast and shattered that it will reach you everywhere.